Hey, it's Brian, and this is a Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories retold episode. These are episodes that we grab out of the archives and repost back up at the top of the feed because they pertain to something that is either happening in the world or that we've been talking about on the show. And in this case, recently on the show, we talked about Janis Joplin and the encounters she had with Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison on stage at Steve Paul's The Scene in New York City in the late 60s. And that got me thinking about a... Another feisty moment in the life of Janis Joplin that we've talked about on the show all the way back in episode 118. Now, that episode was really dedicated to talking about Jerry Lee Lewis and his complicated and controversial legacy after he passed away. But one of the stories that we uncovered when looking into his history was one that centers around an interaction he had when meeting Janis Joplin. And so I thought it'd be fun to pull that story back out. So we grabbed that story from the episode uh, 118. And if you want to hear all of our talk about Jerry Lee Lewis, go back and listen to the original episode. But for your listening pleasure today, here is just the anecdote specifically about Janis. So it's a little bit more about Janis Joplin on a retold episode of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Enjoy and keep telling stories. Okay, so we've mentioned the changing landscape in rock and roll already. And the year before Jerry Lee turns country, there's a new player making a big impression on a lot of people at a little event called the Monterey Pop Festival. And this is a woman operating out of California at the time, but originally hailing from Texas. This is the third time Texas has come up in this story. Uh, Lots of Texas. So she's been fronting a psychedelic rock band from San Francisco. They called themselves Big Brother and the Holding Company. That, of course, is Janis Joplin. I'm ready for wherever we're going. Do, do you know the story of how she gets recruited into Big Brother? Uh, not really. So yeah. she, she hitchhikes with this guy who is a promoter, and he just meets her, right? And then like later, he's working with Big Brother, and he's like, ah, this girl that I gave a ride to once, she'd be great. And they like go and find her. Um, she, they have to bring her out of Austin. Like she has gone to Austin and has been performing solo in Austin and they bring her back to California. Now there's so much to talk about with Janice. We don't really have time for this. Um, we've really not talked tons about Janice on the show before. Another one who just is like an overwhelming force in early rock and roll, but know that her star is rising in 67, 68, 69, right? Um, she will die at the end of 70 and Pearl will come out in 71 just to give you that timeline of what happens with her career, right? So, you know, I think if you know anything about Janice, you know probably uh, Cheap Thrills, which is the Big Brother record, and you probably know Pearl. Pearl's the record you probably think of if you just think of a Janice Joplin album cover. That doesn't come out until she's dead. Um, and she's been recording it when she dies. Now, what you need to know about this period of the late 60s with Janice is that she's starting to eclipse the band that has made her, right? So they recruit her, and people become fascinated with her. So slowly it morphs from being Big Brother and the Holding Company to Janice Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company. They just become her backup band. There's some tension around that. There are battles with drugs. She's a giant personality, if you read anything about her. Um, but it is somewhere during this time that Janice Joplin meets Jerry Lee Lewis. Do you know the name John Byrne Cook? He no. was he was Joplin's only road manager. So she only okay. had one. 67 until she dies in 70. In the show notes, there's this fairly recent interview with Cook when he tells stories about Janice, and specifically he tells a story about Janice and Jerry. Um, but basically, like 
Janice sees Jerry Lewis perform at some point, and she's, I mean, I guess fairly interested in the music, but she's mostly interested in his bass player. She gets a little crush. And when I read this, it reminded me painfully of a girl that I knew in college who I had an on and off again, weird friendship slash relationship with, um, sort of a girlfriend, sort of not. And she would do really frustrating things for a guy who thought he was trying to date her would do really frustrating things. Like (laughs) I'd be like, Hey, what'd you do last night? And she'd be like, Oh yeah, I went to this frat party and I waited. I was watching a band and I waited until they were done. And then I tried to go home with the bass player. (laughs) So basically Janis Joplin is sort of like my college quasi girlfriend. Uh, She's trying to go home with the bass player. And then, you know, like that doesn't happen or whatever. She just sees him and is fascinated by him. And then later, she will go see Jerry Lee Lewis again, partly inspired by the fact that uh, she wants to see this bass player again. So that's what you read. This isn't a super... Like, do you know this story at all? No. Okay, no. so this isn't one of the big Jerry Lee Lewis stories. I dug for this, and but it's enough around that I believe it. And what's really interesting is I had to dig pretty hard to get the middle part of the story. So... What I just told you is a story you're going to hear in brevity, which is like two paragraphs where they say Janis Joplin wanted, like, was interested in Jerry Lee Lewis's bass player, went to one show, then went to another show and went backstage trying to meet the bass player, and then we'll talk about what happens backstage. That's the, that's the story you're going to hear. But what I found with an archived interview from with her sister, Laura, who is a key part of the story and is in the story, Oh, I don't know anything about her sister. This is interesting. So she's six years younger than her. And this is, so she's on the way. This is 70. A lot of times, like, and the other things that I read, it was hard to place when this happened. But I was able to place with this interview with her sister that she gives to an Australian newspaper of all places, um, that this happened in 70, three months before she dies. So they, I mean, Janice is like at the height of her success. Though you could argue that really the height of her success is after she dies. But yeah, it is. Her, her height of her living success. And so she, like I said, came out of Texas. She came out of a small town in Texas called Port Arthur. Port Arthur, yeah. She went to her high school reunion. And that's where she was. Murdoch. That's where she what? was. The night before, the, that night that she goes to see Jerry Lee Lewis the second time. This yeah. gets completely erased from the story. She had been at her high school reunion. The reason she was in Texas, she goes to see him in Beaumont. She's back in Port Arthur. And if you read the story, it just says she went to see him in Beaumont, Texas. It doesn't explain why she was in Texas. She doesn't live in Texas. Oh, my God. Have you ever, ever you know, she brought it, you know, she brought a film crew with her, dude. Really? To the, yeah. And she's like, I'm going to this class reunion. So Janice, just imagine Janice, what she looks like. Goes to class reunion, and man, everybody there is square, and no one cares. Oh, so and- listen, this is this is where we pick up exactly with her sister. So this is the interview okay. from Laura. I mean, it, yeah. it segues exactly into what you're saying. It's from the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, it was a f- quote. It was a formal event, and it was an awkward fit. Recalls seventy yeah. two year old Laura. Um, and I forget the date on this interview. It wasn't terribly long ago. She accompanied Janice, six years her elder, to the reunion and wore a dialed-back version of her sister's fabulous freak-out garb. 
Um, yeah. And now Laura's talking again. Everyone else was a straight middle-class clothing and teased hair. There was a sense that they didn't know what to do about her. But in my mind and in Janice's, they should have made her attendance and her success one of the central points to celebrate. Yeah. Look what someone at our high school achieved. However, and this is Laura continuing to talk, the guy running things thought in terms of how many people had law degrees. It was only when the president of the class said, what about Janice Joplin, that everyone stood up and applauded. Even then, the recognition was miserly. At the reunion, Janice was symbolically gifted, so they're giving out symbolic gifts, right? Most whatever. They don't give her a tambourine or a microphone or a, you know a, anything to denote her success. They give her a tire to represent, quote, that she'd come the furthest. Mm. I saw the clip of her after she leaves the reunion. Describe like after it. she describe it, she is in tears. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it's it's it was really sad to watch. And so that Murdoch, that's the moment when they say, "Fuck it, let's go to Beaumont and see Jerry Lee Lewis." Wow. And this gets completely it, left out of the story. So it gives a little bit more to what I think you're going to have more understanding after what happens next to understand why Janice does what she does. Wait, there's more to tell. So what's happening after that? They find out Jerry's playing near them in Beaumont. And she's like, I want to take my mind off of all this and go see this bass player again. She and Laura go to the show and they are able to get backstage after the show to get around Jerry's band. Now, the John Byrne Cook, who really, I think, feels this affinity for Janice because he was in her employ and you know probably has this affection for her, um, tells NPR in his interview that Jerry Lee, quote, was definitely not welcoming. He made a remark about Janice's sister, and then she flew off the handle. Now, if you read oh. other versions of this, you get a little more color. And this is the color you get. The color is supposedly that Jerry Lee Lewis told Laura, quote, you wouldn't be bad looking if you weren't trying to look like your sister. Gosh, man. Okay. So remember this other article, this other independent article from Australia, uh, Laura, it says that she was dressed like Janice, but just more mm, yeah. pulled back. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Janice's reaction to Jerry Lee Lewis saying this is to punch him in the face. Oh my gosh. She punched Jerry Lee Lewis in the face. What happened next? Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis punched her back and said, if you're going to act like a man, I'm going to treat you like one. Wow. Holy shit. Wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. I've never heard this before. It's so messed up. And I like, when you hear the story without the context of the emotional trauma that had just happened to Janis Joplin, I don't, I, it's just a couple of rock and roll misfits being assholes to each other. When you hear it the way I just told it, whether or not there's embellishment there, or I'm, I'm pulling at too many threads and wrapping them together or whatever. I mean, my heart goes out to Janice. And yeah, also, I, stuff was real. It happened. Yeah. I mean, and, and we know that Jerry Lee Lewis does not prove himself to not be an asshole for the next 
how many years is that? 50 years that he stays alive after this incident? 70? Well, people, would, people would argue, yeah, until he died last week. I mean, I've, I read some things that he was, even last week, not being nice to people. <laughs> so, but he, he, he recorded, someone recorded a very long video with him like 48 hours before he passed away in his house. And he did look like a hospice patient. And he was thanking everyone for everything and thanking everyone for listening to his music and coming to his concerts. And I mean, he, he definitely didn't age well. I, I mean, as we obviously like, it's amazing that he's alive, right? We've said that several times. It's amazing right. that he lived as long as he did, um, given how he lived. And then in the later years, he really was a bit of a shell. There's this video that I remember, like I hadn't thought about Jerry Lee Lewis in a while. And then a couple years ago, there was this guy who was trying to make it in Nashville, and apparently he didn't because I don't remember his name. But he had he was trying to like trick the algorithm, and he'd come up. He'd gotten this video of him playing piano in the style of Jerry Lee Lewis. That's sort of his his gig, and he did it in front of Jerry Lee Lewis. And this video went viral where he was like he might have been in one of I don't know if he's at Jerry's house or what it was. It was some sort of thing, and um. And I just remember watching that video and being like, that guy's a decent p- piano player, but holy crap, look at Jerry Lee Lewis. <laughs> like the poor yeah. guy. I mean, I, I hate for anybody to, regardless of the way they live their life, to sort of look as, as you know, ripped up as he did. Yeah. But, you know, when I mentioned that, that that live record is the first punk rock record ever, like, I'm not, that's how I, that's kind of how I see it. And I don't know the, the, the timeline, if Jerry Lee lit his piano on fire before Hendrix lit his guitar on fire at Monterey Pop, because there's this story, it's a very famous story, and I'm pretty sure it's true, that Jerry Lee and and uh, Chuck Berry were out on tour, and they didn't get along. This is a long time ago. I've seen the, I saw I saw them in the 2000s together. Um, so they started touring together and were normal, but they had a rivalry. And one night when Jerry Lee had to open, he just set the piano on fire. And it's like, well, that's the most insane thing. I mean, I mean, I've never broken a guitar. I've thrown one, but I can't imagine lighting it on fire, much less lighting a, a, a whole piano on fire. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, since we are on rock and roll bedtime stories, I will tell you there is an article in the show notes um, that explores this rumor. As we talk about the rumor and innuendo, there, there, a lot, a lot of people have doubted this, right? Because everybody who was there um, is dead, and there's a lot of people who now say we don't necessarily think it happened. We don't know that he actually, he definitely ripped pianos to shreds, but. We don't really think he he lit one on fire. So GQ in 2014 did an article and poked around at this. And they found his daughter, Phoebe, who at the time had heard her dad say that he did and didn't burn one down. Like both, both, he said both of those things. And this is again, like this show in general has this problem, but Jerry Lee Lewis especially has this problem because he's an inconsistent narrator. (laughs) Like you can't just because he said something happened. We don't necessarily know that that he did. So GQ finds JK Brown, 
who used to play bass for Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, and they call him. And J.K. Brown says, no, he never set a piano on fire. Mm, wow. So, they, the, the sus, what they say that this legend came out of, the fact that they used to, it, I mean, very crude pyrotechnic flair, um, when he would close with great balls of fire, they would do this thing that made it look like there was like fire on stage. I don't oh, know. they had cheap pyro. Yeah. That's funny. And then Chuck Berry comes out and doesn't even tune his guitar, which is more crazy. <laughs> blowing, blow, burning, not do, doing, having crappy pyro. Well, or not tuning your guitar. And, and, and speaking of, since we're sitting on the year 1968, I mean, it is interesting because we're talking about a guy who, it, we, we ran into this with Loretta, right? When we were talking about like, she put out that, uh, coal miner's daughter book in the mid seventies and then lived for like another 50 years almost. Um, but he is like in the late sixties is having this career resurrection. Like he's like that long ago, 50 some odd years ago, he had to have a revival to his career because his career had hit such doldrums. And then he continued to have a career and have this notoriety and get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and all that stuff way after that, right? So it's really interesting. But as part of that revival, do, do you know this story about him playing at the LA Forum with the Doors? Nah, nah, let's hear it. Yeah, so the Doors get to do the Forum uh, in 1968, and they have this idea that they're going to get a 50s rocker to open for them. So they call... Johnny Cash, and they can't get uh, they can't get Johnny to do it. Well, I think they could get Johnny to do it, but the promoters don't like it because at the time Johnny Cash is in a bit of a of a down cycle in his career, and he's you know it's sort of being uh, publicized and made a big deal that he had been arrested and all this stuff, right? So they're like, well, fine, if we can't get if we can't get Johnny Cash, we're going for Jerry Lee Lewis. So in December of 1968, the first time they ever play the forum, uh, they get to to say, "Here's what we're going to do." So they start with Ray Manzarek um, having a Chinese musician play some weird instrument that nobody understands what it is to open the show, and then yeah. after that, they bring Jerry Lee Lewis out. And here's a quote. Half the kids didn't know who Jerry Lee was. He was in his country phrase at the time, and we said, Jerry, you've got to do some of your old rock songs. He had this country album out, and the cover showed him with his head buried in his hands, and the title was, She Still Comes Around, parentheses, to love what's left of me. Oh my and, and we said, you've got to play a whole lot of shaking going on in Great Balls of Fire. The two songs you were alluding to at the beginning, right? Yeah. The audience was just shouting, Jim, Jim, doors! But... Jerry Lee was great. At the end of his set, he slammed the top of his piano shut, climbed on top, and said, okay, for those of you who love me, God bless you. For those who don't, and then he stuck his tongue out and spit at the crowd and walked off like blue raspberry. Oh, my gosh. Hey, there's, I totally forgot, and I think you and I talked about this a while ago. There is a YouTube clip of him, him and, and the audience yelling at each other at a show and people are like yelling and he's like, I'll play whatever goddamn hell I want to play when I want to play it. God damn it. Like he just yet, like 
he's drunk and he's just uh, it's so it's so mean sounding yeah. especially yeah. as a person with a microphone in front of an audience at, yeah. a, at a certain point you create this reputation for yourself right and i wonder if he ever felt like i don't think he i don't think he was like he doesn't seem to have been i'm trying to be careful about how i say this a feeling enough person to necessarily worry about how he was being portrayed or how he was being perceived like that doesn't seem you know you hear the term sociopath and different things associated with him so i don't know that he ever felt trapped by his persona like i i do think that he probably very much was just being him if you want to get involved in the show or if you have questions or stories or things about jerry lee lewis you want to air uh, feel free to send us an email uh, it's we are the story guys at gmail.com um and you can you know leave us a leave us a nice comment or review if you don't mind uh wherever you download the show from and wh- how can people find you on twitter murdoch um hey it's murdoch and uh it's- until next time what should people keep doing I just want to say what made Milwaukee famous made a fool out of me, and we miss you, Jerry Lee. Everybody, keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.